This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Perspective is a radio program that examines contemporary issues from the perspective of the principles of the Baha'i Faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I.org. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing an interview with Dr. Holly Hansen, a Baha'i from South Hadley, Massachusetts, who is a professor at Mount Holyoke College of History and African and African American Studies and the author of two books, Social and Economic Development, A Baha'i Approach, and Landed Obligation, The Practice of Power in Buganda. I started the interview by asking Holly where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Colorado. Both of my parents were professors at the University of Colorado, so I remember a beautiful wide blue Colorado mountain sky and um, my elementary school was an elementary school with a lot of people whose parents were related to the university and then to businesses in Boulder, Colorado. So it's the University of Colorado? It was the University of Colorado mm-hmm. is in Boulder. And you were there through your childhood? I was, I was there through <clears throat> junior high then I spent my high school years living in Fort Collins, Colorado where my mother was teaching at Colorado State University. Mm-hmm. So I was uh, actually to live in the Amherst area is is really pretty familiar to me because I was in a college town and then I was in a different college town. And now I'm in a, in the Mount Holyoke which is in the neighborhood of a college town. <laughs> and what did your parents teach? My my father taught sociology. He actually was the Marxist sociology on the fac- sociologist on the faculty. You said Marxist? Marxist, yes. Oh. He was the house Marxist sociologist. <laughs> And my mother taught child development and family relations. Mm, mm-hmm. This was through. This takes you through high school. Through high school. Okay. Then, when I graduated from high school, my parents, who were who were um, very oriented towards the justice in society and and making a contribution to society, my parents said, "You know how to go to school, but what else do you know?" And mm-hmm. so, before I went to college, I went to Kenya for a year. Mm. to um to to do work in the world because that's what my parents they that my parents wanted me to have that experience before I went to college. Mm. And my mother's idea was that I could go to Appalachia and and do something there. Uh but because I had become a Baha'i in high school, I I put myself in touch with people I knew who were Baha'is who were teaching at an ag- what was then an agricultural college in Kenya. And before I went to university, I spent a year in rural western Kenya. Mm-hmm. And what, was, what did you do? Uh, what I was doing was helping to write adult literacy materials and then to test out adult literacy materials that were prepared by the Baha'i community. But they, they weren't just for the Baha'i community. It was adult literacy and um, community education. Um, and I, I was just sitting in, in a, in a place on the Edgerton College campus in Njoro, Kenya, 
doing the writing, and then we would go out and use the materials in, uh, in the western part, mostly in the western part of Kenya. Mm. Now, how is it that you ran into the Baha'i faith in high school? Aha, uh-huh, that's a good question, because I am the child of Marxists and atheists, a Marxist father and an atheist, atheist social reformer mother, and I became a, a really focused religious person. I um, really, literally, I saw a, pa- a poster on a college campus where my mother was doing a weekend workshop. And the, the graphic on the poster was a white hand and a red hand and a yellow hand and a brown hand holding the earth. And it was just such a gripping visual that I walked over and I picked up the pamphlet and it was this very simple pamphlet that said, what is the Baha'i faith? And I read it and I thought, oh, I think this is true. I have since then read that pamphlet and thought, this is a this is a very lame pamphlet. But um, at the time, I just... That sort of the, you know the, the world shifted. I felt everything vibrating. I thought mm. this is the truth, and I didn't know it before. And how old were you? I was fifteen, and my my mother, who um, was a very con- committed atheist or really agnostic, said, "It's okay. All teenagers get religion. It's just a phase. It's a natural part of your psychological development. It's all right." Which at the time, actually, I I was a Baha'i for a number of years, and I and before I I let go of the idea that I had grown up with, which was religion is for people who can't find answers for themselves, and I kind of thought, well, I'm a person who can't find answers for myself, and so I found this religion. It's a great religion. It took me a while to move out of that um, orientation to reality of my childhood mm. and think, actually. The reason I became a Baha'i is that the goals of social justice and the create the aspiration to contribute to creating a just society, which my parents had taught me, can only be realized with faith. But mm. it, it took me a while to sort of put it all together. Yeah. And what do they think of you being a Baha'i now? Yeah, that's a really sweet question. My mother who and I, who could, we could really talk to each other very clearly about, about beliefs and, and about how we, f- how we felt about things. There was a moment when I was in college and my mother said to me, I will always regret that I can't understand the mode, the modality you've cho- chosen mm-hmm. to serve humanity. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a moment of grief for both of us because what she was saying is, I see what you aspire to do with your faith but I just can't understand it. But a few years later, she said, um, after, after Vietnam, and there was a the point in time in American society when uh, left-leaning liberals, like, like my mother, became very disillusioned. Mm-hmm. And at that point, she said, I'm so glad you're a Baha'i, and I'm so glad that I have met the Baha'is I have met through you, because because of you, I feel that there's hope. She didn't say, and now I think I'd like to stop being an atheist and join your faith community. But she said, because it's there, I I can feel more hope for the world. Mm. So my mother's my my mother's sense changed just from her her interaction with Baha'is. My father, who was the the Marxist, really a very learned Marxist sociologist, could never really get over his suspicion but I remember at my wedding which was of course Baha'i scripture 
what my father said at the end of my wedding was, it was all dialectics, which was, of course, his way of saying that that those things that you were reading did have the word God in them, but they really made sense. It was gorgeously dialectical. Define for you dialectic. Dialectics, dialectics means uh, is a sort of core idea for Marxist, and it means out of out of the contrast or the conflict of opposites will come a resolution mm. that or will come social transformation mm. from out of a clash the um the consequences of of that clash create something new and something better which of course is a, is an idea that's part of bahai uh bahai view of social transformation or contrasts in interaction I, I could see how my father, the Marxist, could see something really positive for him mm. in the Baha'i faith. Mm. Partly because his religion, which was Marxism, taught him human beings have the capacity to make the world a better place. The The energy for that kind of comes from a different place. And, and it's a system of belief that leaves out God. But it does have a really strong... Um, Conviction of human capacity, and that—that's where the connection was. Mm. You were in Kenya for a year. I was in Kenya for a year. I came back from Kenya, and um, went to Brown University for two years. I left Brown because, although it was a really useful education, I couldn't learn about Africa. It, it, and it, I think Brown is a little better at this now, thirty-five years later than it was then. Mm. But at the time. The world was Europe, and maybe a little bit China, but Africa just wasn't on the map. You could not study Africa at Brown University. And I had come back from this experience in Kenya with really burning questions about why is the world the way it is, and how is it that I grew up with such... um, with a, such unquestioned access to resources of material resources and running water and electricity in my home and stores full of things and education that I didn't question that it would be there for me. And how was it that the people ho- who I was interacting with in Kenya didn't have those things? And I needed my education to answer that question. So after two years, I left Brown and went to the University of Wisconsin which has one of the really strong African studies programs in the United States. Um, And after I finished my bachelor's degree, I almost immediately was back in Africa, although that time in West Africa, doing community development work again. Mm -hmm. So you left the States for some period of time after graduating from the University of Wisconsin? I graduated, I got married, and then I spent the next 11 years outside of the U.S. Mm -hmm. At first in Nigeria, where my... um, husband was working for an international agricultural research institute and I was doing sort of community-based social change work with Baha'i communities Um, and we were we were there for three years and then left there when he was asked to be the head of the data processing department at the Baha'i World Center in Israel Hmm. so then for seven years we were in Israel in Haifa which is the um, the Baha'i International Community, the, the headquarters of the Baha'i Faith. Mm-hmm. My husband ran the data processing center, and I um, I worked in the community development clearinghouse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you said you were there for... We were there for seven years. Mm-hmm. 
What about after that? I we left, um, and I was in graduate school. I went event uh, took a year of sort of transition to get me there, but then I was uh, in graduate school at the University of Florida where I did a, a PhD in African history. It wasn't really my plan when I left Haifa to study history. I thought I wanted to study community development and community-based social change, which is what I had been working in really for a very long time. And in Haifa, as I was working in in the office that was a clearinghouse for Baha'i communities around the world to share information about um, social and economic development on the local level. Mm -hmm. I had written a book about it. So the logical thing, I thought, was for me to go to the U.S. and study development. But what I discovered was it's not a good idea when you're applying to graduate school to already know what you think about a topic. And I I used my Baha'i development book as my writing sample, uh, which did did not get me into some of the programs I applied to. It did get me into other ones, but in the end, I chose a, a history PhD because I thought that was going to give me the broadest um, ability to really think my own thoughts. Mm-hmm. Now, you had focused on African studies in undergraduate, and then there seemed to be this draw toward right. Africa. Right, And right. then I, did it sort of just, you got separated from that, those seven years that you were in Israel, sort of focused on social and economic development worldwide, well, or... Actually, I think it, it, it kind of was an intensifier in that um, when I was working at, serving at the Baha'i headquarters in Israel, I was paying attention to communities in Africa, which I really understood. You know, I could visualize them. And in fact, I knew people in some of them. Um, but I was also interacting with Baha'i communities in the, in the Pacific and um, in Latin America. And so there, there were ways that the issues of how do we, how do people in local communities without a lot of material resources, without access to great education, what can we do for ourselves with the tools of will and the kind of ability to sublimate the ego that, that commitment to a religious community has? There were similarities. So... And also, of course, some differences. But I've, I, I felt still the, the Africa connection there. Mm. And when I, when I came back to the United States and I was trying to get myself into a graduate program, I actually telephoned my undergraduate advisor, who was an African historian, and I said, um, will you pl- pl- please write me a, a letter so that I succeed in getting into one of these um, development uh programs that I'm trying to get into. And he said, I will, but don't you think it would be really useful to doing community-based social change if you understood the history? Why don't you come and study with me? So I I sort of ended up in African history partly because I really love it, I guess, Um, but also because even as I entered, I understood, I had a sense that knowing more and being able to say more about how we got to the present was going to be useful in the present. And mm-hmm. I think that's what I'm trying to do as a historian of Africa. I'm trying to answer the question, how did we make the world the way it is? Because if we know how we made it the world the world the way it is, 
then that opens up for us the possibility that that we could make different choices mm. and make the future different. Mm -hmm. And what's the name of the book that you wrote? Uh, the Baha'i book is called Social and Economic Development, A Baha'i Approach. Mm -hmm. And then my first African history book is called um, Landed Obligation, The Practice of Power in Buganda. I'm sure you've seen it many times on supermarket shelves. Uh, uh, Along with the uh, People Magazine and the National Enquirer. Right, 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 right. I'm always happy if I, if I just happen to, if somebody tells me that they've seen on Amazon.com that it's, it's above the, the millionth seller. It, it has occasionally been above, above the millionth seller, but then, it, you know, it drops below. Um, and right now I'm working on a couple different things. One is a book on um, on thinking about patterns of global interaction. We have we because we have globalization. We've actually had globalization for a really long time. And how do we think about having patterns of world encircling interaction and connection that are characterized by justice instead of um, injustice? I think that. Our, our debates about globalization tend to be too narrow and too dichotomized. So what I want to do is, is enter that thinking and ask the question, given the fact that, that world-encircling patterns of interaction are just with us and are probably a good thing, how do we change them? What, where are the points and what kinds of action does it take from individuals and groups to change those unjust patterns into ones characterized by justice. Mm -hmm. So instead of just fighting this right. movement toward globalization, how can we make globalization more just? Yeah, yeah, yes. Mm -hmm. And I, um, that's the thing that I would be working on if I wasn't uh, doing everything else <laughs> I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> yeah. So you let's review again. So you were at the you went back to the University of Wisconsin for your No, I went to the University of Florida for my PhD because my my oh, your professor moved yeah, there. Yeah, my my um undergraduate advisor had moved to Florida. Oh, okay. So I I lived in Florida from uh 1990 to 1997 except for the the summers and then the year that I was doing PhD research in Uganda. Hmm. And Gainesville, Florida was a great place. I um I liked how low my rent was. I liked how easy it was to park my car. It wasn't really very easy to park my car on campus, but I could I could get places. I could afford a babysitter. It was a wonderfully um, ethnically diverse but connected community. Mm -hmm. When my daughter applied to college, she said that she wrote in her essay that I just grew up thinking that everybody marched in a Martin Luther King Day parade. And then she said, but then when I got to Massachusetts in the small town she lived in in Massachusetts when she was with her dad in high school, she said, I don't think people even celebrated Martin Luther King Day. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we had a, 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 a very um, wonderfully diverse and um, actively diverse community when I was in graduate school. It was a great place. Mm -hmm. Then in 1997, I, I moved up here to take a job um, as African the person who teaches African history at Mount Holyoke. Mm -hmm. So then I've, I've been here now for nine years, mm. except last year I was in Uganda. And you had been to, you went to Uganda during your PhD studies? Right. I, I had never been to Uganda when I had, I had lived in East Africa 
as a teenager. Then I had lived in West Africa as a as a young, newly married adult, and I had I had visited in East Africa in between, and I I hadn't been in Uganda because those were years when it wasn't a very safe place for foreigners, and when I went in 1997 to when no I, 1993 was the first time I was in Uganda setting up my PhD research, there were very very few foreigners, um, because. Uh, people who weren't Ugandans were just beginning to come back into the country. The sidewalks were still all torn up from the end of of the war in which Museveni and and his forces had fought their way back into the capital and 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 taken over the government. Uh, Can you so, just give this a little quick background of the of Ugandan the, history? Yeah. yeah. Um, Uganda was a British col- was colonized by the British in the eighteen eighties. It gained its independence in the early 1960s. There was a uh, a challenging uh, set of circumstances for Ugandans as an independent state because some parts of Uganda had been highly favored over other parts by the British, and those parts didn't get along very well. Which is actually the the condition the the cause of of post independence conflict in lots of parts of Africa. The way the manifestation of that in Uganda was a um, post-independence democracy that that didn't work very well, and um, Idi Amin gained power in the late 1960s. The, he was applauded when he came to power by both the British and the Americans, who thought that he was a safer bet than the person who preceded him, who sounded like he might be a socialist. Anyway, Amin followed by um, Amin was was pushed out in a um, by a, a military invasion by the Tanzanians and Ugandan exiles but what followed Amin was actually worse there was a, a period of just really chaos in Uganda with government following government but none of them really had a lot of authority authority was in the hands of men with guns and um President Museveni, who's, who is still the president, and his army, um, Museveni having lost an election, went into the bush, started a bush war, and after really the, the whole Ugandan civil war, most recent one, lasted 17 years, um, 16 years, and, and that gov- that regime has now been in power for about 17 years. Mm. So when I when I was first there in 1995, it was not that many years into this stable Museveni period. People were incredibly optimistic and there was a form of local govern a form of governance which um the NRM which stands for the National Re- Resistance Movement had instituted because the kind of British parliamentary democracy that they tried after independence really had not worked for people. So what they tried to implement was um, a a tiered series of councils of nine people elected by um, the people of an area with no campaigning, which is really interesting because it's quite similar to Baha'i elections. And actually, um, the the Ugandan government person who spoke at the uh, 
50th anniversary of the Baha'i faith in Uganda said that it was true that the NRM had gotten that idea from the Baha'i community. In the first few years of the LC, it stands for local council, of the LC system, it, uh, people were tremendously enthusiastic about it and they considered it a really powerful tool. So I remember in the early 90s, you could drive, I can't remember whether it was Thursday afternoon or Friday afternoon, but there was one day of the month when the LCs were supposed to meet, you could just pass through the country and you would see in um, community after community these gatherings of 50 or 100 people. It was really very powerfully local democracy at work. But um, it got uh, co-opted into a system that wasn't as accountable. And it it doesn't really exist anymore. Mm -hmm. That wasn't a very short... Um, that wasn't a very short Uganda history, but then you asked a historian. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was very well done. It was very well done. Um, So during your PhD studies, did you keep going back and forth to Uganda? What kind of work did you do? Yeah, Doing my PhD, I went in 93 for a few months to set it up, and then I went back in 1995 for most of the year to do the research. And when I went in 95, I took my children with me, Mm -hmm. who were then um, 11 and 14. And what I what I went to do when I first went to Uganda to do my research, I thought that I was going to look at um, the f- one of the first instances of the creation of private property and land in Africa, because in 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 southern Uganda, in a part of Uganda that was called the Buganda, it was it was a kingdom in what's now southern Uganda. Um, private property and land was created in 1900 at the beginning of the colonial period, which is really interesting because in most of sub-Saharan Africa, the instrument of private property as we know it um, was created late in the colonial period. So what I wanted to look at was what happened when private property, the idea that this belongs to me and you can't come on it, it doesn't matter if you're starving, you can't grow any food on it because it's my land, which is a really different concept than um, earlier concepts of land use in this part of Africa, where it can belong to people, but it's morally unthinkable that you would have land that you weren't using and not allow other people to use it for subsistence. So that my question was, how, what did that change mean, and um, how did it happen? When I got to Uganda and started looking at it, what I decided was that I had a disaster as a history project because things hadn't changed, that even though the concept of private property was there, people didn't use that land really as private property in the way that we think about it. And the kinds of relationships that people had created by loaning land and um, giving land to other people to use, and then which created a kind of... um, a sort of indebtedness that even though private property in, existed in law how people use the land hadn't changed that much and I thought great I'm a historian I've come to do research and what I've decided is that things didn't change it's going to be a really short short dissertation but I, I looked at it more and I um, I began to think of, of my project in a sort of bigger sense which is um, what does it mean that land is a way of speaking about power and then the the I I ended up writing about how people understand political relationships and how people create f- forms of 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 um, governance 
based on 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 exchange of gifts. Mm-hmm. So I I was there in '93. Then I was there in all of '95, and then I didn't go back to Uganda for um, eight years. Not because I didn't want to, but because the part of the beginning of having an academic job is you have got to um, you have you've got to learn how to teach well, and you have got to um, write your book and get your book out. So I couldn't go back to Uganda until I had finished working with the material that I had. Mm-hmm. And as soon as my book was finished in, in manuscript, I went back to Uganda. And I've pretty much been going back every year for at least a month or two months. And then I was there all of last year. Mm-hmm. So it, it was a disaster in the sense from your point of view, but not necessarily a disaster from a negative colonial oh, impact. Th- what did Milo land? That that's a really interesting question. What did the creation of private property do to th- for this part of of southern Uganda? And that that's really very hotly debated. Um, I think that it's part of you. Can, one can't answer that question just thinking about land. What happened was the kingdom, the Buganda kingdom, actually had um, a economic strength and even in 1895 and 1900 it had a a military strength that the British found threatening and so the creation of private property and land was part of a deal that one British imperial entrepreneur cut with the Baganda because he was he was really afraid of their military power so what the what the what the Ganda people got out of it wasn't just the creation of private property but a kind of a um, acknowledgement of the validity of their uh, their governing institutions, uh, and the relationship that that the Buganda Kingdom then had with the rest of Uganda, which was in the same ag- agreement as the private property agreement, benefited them a lot. So, if you look re- back on it from now. Um, the special circumstance of Milo land, because it was called Milo because it was handed out in square miles. Mm -hmm. So the existence of this form of land tenure and the the British assent to the, the Ganda kingdom and the Ganda parliament gave the Buganda kingdom a kind of special role inside of Uganda, which made it much more difficult for Uganda as a state to last. So mm-hmm. it wasn't a real good thing for Uganda as a nation. Of course, at the time that it happened, Uganda as a nation didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, for people inside of, of that place, uh, I think it's kind of mixed. It depends on whether you were the child of the like, gigantic landowner or the child of the tenant. Right. I would probably say it was a positive overall. Um, but if I had been, if I was the descendant of one of the people who lost their land, I, I probably wouldn't see it that way. Right. Yeah. So <clears throat> you got your PhD and then you got your, you wrote, you published a book? Yes. And what was the name of the title of the book? Uh, that's Landed Obligation, the Practice of Power in Buganda. That's the one that uh, you I mentioned earlier. Right. That okay. you, I, I think I want you to look for it in, in <laughs> Next time you're in a, a large supermarket. Okay. Um, uh, then I was. It took me a few years to get it out as a book. I mm. mean, it was my dissertation, and then a few years later, it came out. It a number of years later, it came out as a book. And then what I started to work on was um, what I want to think about was 
how can I make Ugandan history, which is pretty small and, um, at least in this country, esoteric and irrelevant and useless subject, how can I use this 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 academic field that I have or this space that I occupy, which is I really know a lot about Ugandan history, how can I use that to say something to not just Ugandans, but Ugandans and other people in the world that's useful to all of us. Mm. So I des- I designed my next my current project with that in mind, and and what I'm working on is a history of the city of Kampala, but a history of how how did economic exchange develop in this place from the middle of the 19th century to the present, and wh- who's involved in creating a dynamic economy, what are the um, social relationships that those people creating an economy create with each other. And the real question that I'm asking is, is an economy really separate from the rest of society? Or if we really look at it carefully, isn't what we see in, in an economy really social relationships? And then the question that follows from that for me is, if we see economic relationships as really social relationships, does that help us open the possibility of making economies work for more people than than currently they work for? Mm-hmm. Um, I want to go into your sabbatical uh, right. in Uganda, but you moved to Mount Holyoke to teach at Mount Holyoke right. after you got your PhD. Right. You've been teaching there since for nine years. Nine years. And you've been teaching Afri- uh, African history, or specifically uh, I, Ugandan yeah. history, I, or no? I teach I I teach Africa from the dawn of time until yesterday. <laughs> um, I, I leave. I, we spend don't spend too much time on the dawn of time. Um, and actually, sometimes the, my classes have to end up going into tomorrow because those that's what's really mm. most interesting. Right. I teach African history, but a few years ago, I designed a class called the history of global inequality because I decided if I do history and I want to be useful in the world then the thing that the historical question that is most burning and critical for my students at Mount Holyoke is how did we the people of the world create the inequalities that exist today we have this vast inequality of wealth and it vast inequalities in terms of who has voice and power in the world. And I wanted to design a class that would help us see that that's not natural, that the, those divide, the, those divisions, first of all, they haven't always existed, and, and the, the locations of power in the present um, are really very new, that mm. only even a few hundred years ago, um, the shape of power in the world was different. So I teach mostly African history, but every fall I teach a class called The History of of Global Inequality. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's been great. It's wonderful to teach in this area. It's great to have students from all five colleges. And um, a few years ago, the the, uh, Mount Holyoke... Um, orientation t-shirt said um, educating women to change the world mm-hmm. and I thought that's right that's yeah. what my job is and I'm really happy to be able to do it that's terrific 
That's terrific. Okay, so tell me the beginnings of the idea of taking a sabbatical and, and yeah. going Part, to UConn. Yeah. Part of being a university professor is that you're you're supposed to teach, but then you're also supposed to be having new ideas and turning those new ideas into books. So every few years, people have some time where they don't teach and they're just supposed to um, develop those new ideas and publish them. So that was that's what the sabbatical is. And I, um, knowing that I wanted to think. I, w- I wanted to do a project that was in Uganda because I, you know, I, I've accumulated a lot of um, social capital as well as um, knowledge of Uganda. But I didn't want it to be just about the Buganda Kingdom. I really wanted it to be some, a project that would speak to all of all of Uganda. So I thought if I write about about the capital city, people from all over the country arrived there, and I um, I wanted to think about the social dimensions of economic history because I think that's this lever as I said it's a lever into understanding the present differently so I I um, applied for and got a Fulbright a faculty Fulbright fellowship and I I used that this summer of 2004 for a few months and then I went back at the beginning of 2005 and was there for 13 months um I because I've been in and out of Uganda now for um what 15 or 16 years um I I have a a really pretty broad network of friends and acquaintances so it's really easy for me to arrive and fit into a community uh or a number of different communities so it's it's pretty easy for me to work there mm-hmm. You were focusing on the history of Kampala, uh, Kampala, Kampala, and then something about the relationship, the relationships, yeah, so, and economy. Right. I'll will t- tell you what I did. Okay. This is what I spent my time doing. Um, there are a, a few libraries that have collected the letters of explorers, or um, the journals of people who were living there in the um, 120 years ago. Then. And I spent a lot of time in those libraries just reading those documents. But the history of a city is also written into the into the streets and the buildings and the memories of people. So I spent a lot of time just moving around the city and talking to old people about where they were, how long they'd been there, and what and things that they remembered happening in particular places. So people told me things that none of the documents about those moments in time um, included because um, there there are things that we write down and then there are other things that that matter to us which at the moment that they happen no one writes them down because they don't seem important at that moment Mm. so one example of that is um, the 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 people who did retail trade in Uganda from the middle of the 19th century or the the late 19th century until the 1970s were Asians, were people who would now be called Indians and Pakistanis. But they came um, largely from Gujarat and Kutch in uh, what's now sort of northern India. 
and um, the Idi Amin expelled the Asians from Uganda. They were just sent out, sent packing in 1972. A few, a, a lot of people told me that story, and they told it to me. They told it to me in very, very personal ways. Mm. Uh, so, when I got to the airport. I had three suitcases and I wasn't allowed to take them and I put my suitcase in a pile a mountain of suitcases of things that that other people were leaving behind really really personal stories but one person who stayed was a a doctor a Dr. Ahmed who had he, he was he was so both so well loved but of course many of these people had had positions in the society where they were well respected, well loved, and needed, and it, it was a um, a tragedy and and a travesty, and and, and everyone saw it. But Doctor Ahmed stayed; he was asked to stay, and he did. And one of the things he told me was, for for weeks after the Asians left, all of the shops along the main street were closed; they were shuttered, and papers, business papers were just blowing along the main street. Mm. Now, I have, you know, I've been reading about this for a number of years. And nobody wrote that down because at the time it was happening, it, it was just happening. It wasn't something to be written down. People haven't, perhaps because it's relatively recent and it's painful, people haven't gone back and um, written that story. So I spent a lot of time talking to people um, just serendipitously or people would know what I was doing and say let me bring you to my friend so and so she has a story you'll want to hear Um, and reading things I spent a lot of time reading microfilm of the city council records um, and and a lot of time in the city council um, building reading um, old volumes of city council records Mm -hmm. one thing about being a historian is you have to be okay with dust because you get really dusty (laughs) and from this you're developing a book right right and uh, tell me about your book the book that i wish i was writing right now right (laughs) actually it's it's turning into three books but one of them is just about kampala i want to write a book about the city of Kampala and how you can see the si- the history in the city that's there. So something in between an academic book and a book that people who aren't um, taking African history classes in the five colleges would want to read. Ordinary people would want to read them, not just because they have to. Uh, so I want to write a book that starts with Kampala in the present, and it, it takes... Um, eight or nine locations in Kampala. So I say, when you go to the, to the, to the tourist attraction, the Kasubi tombs, this is what you see. And this is, what, this is the history behind what you see. But in this location, this is what you can't see, which is also part of the history. So I, I, I did this as a lecture for, the, um, for a, a couple of organizations. I'd say, let me take you on a tour around the city. Now we're in this spot. This is what you see. This is how you can read the history of this place. But what happened here that you can't see is this. Mm. So 
that's one of the books I want to write. I want to write a book about about the city which locates the important places of political power, the important places of economic change, how those changed over the 19th and 20th century, what's still left of them. And I want to, I want to unfold hundreds of years of the development of this place uh, in those physical places. That's one book. <laughs> then I also want to write a book... Um, and I, I started on this one. This one I'm not done with with the interviews, um, but I, the the city of Kampala is is spreads over nine hills. Um, there's actually people say there's it's been called the city of nine hills. It's also called, if you really want to be technical about it, thirty two hills. But uh, on the top of the main hills there are are religious buildings. So Rubaga Cathedral, the um, Catholic Cathedral, is on the top of one hill. And Namarembe Cathedral, the Anglican Cathedral, is on the top of another hill. And on the top of Chibuli Hill is Chibuli Mosque. And on the top of... Um, actually, it's not the top, but on Nakasero Hill is the Hindu Temple. And uh, so the city is kind of um, defined by religious buildings on hilltops. And what I want to do is write another book about Kampala that combines family histories of a Muslim family in Chibuli, a Catholic family from Rubaga, a Protestant family from Namarembe, a Baha'i family from Kikaya, because there's also a Baha'i temple on one of these hills. And then I, I, I want to just lay out those family histories and look at how does participation or membership and commitment to these various religious communities create the the economic opportunity and the educational opportunity that people experience? Because we have a habit, maybe we don't, but it seems to me that we have a habit of... of um, uh, placing religion in a box, and we think... We kind of think of it as something that you can shop for at the supermarket of life. And you you have your work, and you have your friends, and you have your pets, and you have your hobbies, and you have your religion. It's just one of the things that you get. Um, and in a tremendously materialistic society like ours, maybe that's just how we're going to treat everything. But I, I think that that's um, a real distortion of what religious community is. I think if we step back, what we can see, at least what we can see historically, is that a religious community, a, a religious conviction and a religious community unfold possibilities for people. So because people in these families were Protestant or Catholic or Muslim or Baha'i, because of that, uh, people chose to educate their children. They chose to educate them in a certain kind of way. There were certain professions that they were drawn into or their children were drawn into. There were opportunities that unfolded. And I, I want to write about um, the, the way that these different religious institutions really create progress in the city. Mm. And, of course, they also create division um, because a really important part of the history of Uganda is the way that um, 
people have uh, turned religious difference in a way to in into a reason to um, have conflict and compete and waste a lot of resources. Yeah. There's a third book in your mind? The third one is the book that will only be interesting to people who have to read it because they're <laughs> forced to in their college classes or because... No, actually, that's not true. The third book is um, but sl- a slightly more academic book, but I want to write about the, his- the social history of economic exchange as the history of corruption. So how do we get to have the kind of... Um, buying of influence or avoiding of responsibility through gift giving that's part of uh, sub-Saharan Africa at the present and how does that grow out of a really um, much more accountable form of gift giving in the past my first book the one that you have to go look for on the supermarket shelves um, is really about the premise that people create political interaction through exchange of gifts, gifts of things or gifts of labor, gifts of land. So what I want to do with this next one is ask, how does that process of gift giving turn um, turn bad? How does it turn ineffective? Mm-hmm. Um, so my the other of those three books is going to be a history of corruption. Interesting. That should be interesting. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not done with that. In fact, yeah. I haven't. I'm Which one are you closest to getting done? <laughs> <laughs> um, the history of Kampala mm. is 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 the easiest, mm-hmm. but I probably have the most written. I have a bit of that written, and I have a bit of the history of corruption written. Mm. Can you elaborate a little bit more on the relationships of the religions in Uganda? And, you know, what's the primary religion uh-huh. uh, and how do the minority religions right, relate? Right, right. One of the really interesting things about Uganda is that um, people confer- converted to Islam and to Catholicism and to becoming Protestants before colonial rule began. So in southern Uganda, in the middle of the 19th century, um, traders who were Muslim trading from the coast of Kenya arrived in this part of um, East Africa. And in those days, it took um, took four or five months to get as far in as Uganda in caravans where people are walking. And those, those um, Muslim, East African coastal mo- Muslim traders converted people to Islam um, so there were Muslims, and then um, the the king of Buganda actually asked for missionaries when he met a couple of Christians who said, "Look, yeah, that that that's one religion, but ours is actually better, and you should you should if you if you write to Queen Victoria, she'll she'll send you some missionaries." So the king of Buganda did. He said, "I hear there's another religion." Um, so-and-so, this explorer, has told me about Jesus Christ. So um, send me some teachers. Uh, So both the uh, Church Missionary Society and the the French Catholic Missionary Society that's called the White Fathers 
both as soon as as soon as this appeal was published in British ne- newspapers, both groups sent missionaries to Uganda, and um, thousands of people converted before before imperial entrepreneurs had arrived. In fact, um, uh, people writing back from Uganda, and this is in the 1880s, say, don't send trade beads. Nobody here wants beads. Send books. I can't get rid of my trade beads. Everybody's asking me for books and writing paper. We need. We don't need thousands of books. We need millions of books. Mm-hmm. So people um, converted to... And conversion was partly about reading. The people who became Christian or Muslim were called readers because... They would read their holy books? Yeah, the really important thing to do was to learn how to read, to read the holy book. But part of what the missionaries brought with them was their own conflict. So in East Africa, in the late 19th century, there's a war of Protestants against Catholics Mm. and, and Muslims. And actually it's more complicated than that. It also has to do with the destabilization of, of political authority that's brought by the slave trade. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the categories that people are fighting with, there, there probably would have been war anyway, but the, the categories that people are fighting with are, are you Muslim? Are you Protestant? Are you Catholic? Um, and the, the colonial state was, was established by, through a collaboration of British and, um, Protestant chiefs who were who were victorious in that war, mm-hmm. so the at colonial administration had a somewhat Protestant flavor. Although there were at that time there were more Catholics, and there are also Catholics in government. Muslims really lost out, not because that they they were numerically um, smaller or because they had less of a vision of modernity, but because the British really were afraid of the Muslims and and froze them out in the early twentieth century. Um, then the Baha'i faith arrives in Uganda in the late 1950s. And uh, there was the same kind of really immediate, powerful enthusiasm, and pe- people were attracted to it in the very same kind of way their great-grandparents had been attracted to Christianity and Islam. Mm. So what does the future hold? I know you've got books to write, but what does the future hold for you, Ali? <laughs> for me? Oh, that's a much easier question than what does the future hold for Uganda. Um, what, one of the things that I did this year in Uganda, which w- it was so wonderful to have a whole year there, and also to be there for a year and not be a stranger, because I just arrived back, and people said, you know, hi, we're glad you're back, not who are you. So... Um, I was able to do to d- define myself as a member of the of the Kampala Baha'i community and as a uh, you know a participant in the Center for Basic Research and someone who belonged around the history department at McCarray. So I could just I could um, uh, make use of not being entirely a stranger. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I got really involved in was um, the beginning of the implementation of a, a, a program of rural education that comes from, um, it actually comes from rural Colombia. And I had first been exposed to it when I was working at the Baha'i Center in Israel in their Office of Social and Economic Development. 
and it's, it's called Fundiac, which stands for, uh, Spanish, and I don't want to speak Spanish on uh, <laughs> to a large audience, but it stands for the Foundation for the um, uh, Education in uh, in Science. Okay. The rural, rural education in science. So Fundiac is an attempt. It's been going on for about thirty years to develop really rigorous, high-level science and social science education in rural areas for people that, that that doesn't draw people out of rural areas into town, but makes um, the tools of of science and of education of value to rural people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had I had encountered it as a uh, as a uh, when I was in Israel, and then had visited Colombia to see it when I was a graduate student. And when I was in Uganda this year, I just happened to find a few people there who had also been exposed to Fundiac in Latin America and aspired to initiate a, a preparation um, for social action curriculum ba- that comes from the Fundiac one in Uganda. So I, I began to help to do that. We created an NGO. Um, we started to do training, and I did a, a a bit of the initial training to find tutors to go out to rural areas in Uganda and implement this rural education system. Mm. So that's part of what's in my future. I've got to go back to Uganda to keep working on these books. I also want to go back to Uganda to keep working on um, Kimanya, which is our um, rural education initiative. I want to I want to turn my history of global inequality class into a book. Mm. Um, so I, I I want to live on two continents and uh, convince people that the essence of economics is is love and reciprocity. Mm. Well, thank you very much, Holly. I appreciate uh, you taking the time to be interviewed. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Holly Hansen a professor at Mount Holyoke College of History and African and African-American Studies, and the author of two books, Social and Economic Development, A Baha'i Approach, and Landed Obligation, The Practice of Power in Buganda. For a copy of this and other interviews, you're welcome to go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.